Well, wouldn't you agree that we live in a day and an age and a culture that is very much like the days of the judges, where every man does what is right in his own eyes? And yet somehow people don't have any problem whatsoever describing themselves as being religious. In fact, according to a study done by the Pew Research Center, 80% of Americans have absolutely no problem saying they believe in God or in some sort of higher power that is leading, guiding, and directing them, determining what ultimately happens not only in this life, but also in the life to come. And did you know that in the United States, believing in God is common even among the religiously unaffiliated so folks who identify themselves as atheists, agnostics, or as nothing in particular, even in that group, 72% believe in God. So 80% of the general population believes in God, and 72% of the atheists, agnostics, and nothing in particular believe in God. So if you ask me, the question that we should be asking is what God are they believing in? Or even more specifically, what God are we believing in? And is it truly the God of the Bible? Because if it's not the God of the Bible, then what benefit could he possibly bring to our lives? And how could he ever help us experience life after death? Because if it's just a God of our own imagination, there's no benefit of all. Which explains, by the way, why the world and so many of us have no fear of God before our eyes. And why we're so comfortable doing whatever is right in our own eyes. Because there's absolutely no consequence to offending a God of your own imagination. Because he's always in agreement with you. And we see that, don't we? Many professing evangelical churches and the people who attend them are well known for their irreverence, immorality, and hypocrisy. So quick to say they believe in God, but not quick to obey God or to proclaim God, or to live for the glory of God. So let me just ask, what makes you think this morning that your understanding of God is right? What gives you the confidence to say that God is like this or that God is like that? And why do you assume that your perception of who God is is in line with reality? You see, what's so glorious about our passage this morning is that Jesus is going to lay out for us a beautiful picture of who God really is so that we might rightly understand him and respond to him correctly. Because of the, the God of the Bible is not a God to be trifled with because he's a God of justice, righteousness, and yes, he's a God of wrath. But through faith in the Lord Jesus, God's son, he's also a God who is patient and kind, and merciful, and forbearing. That's who we're going to hear about in the parable of the tenants. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 12, sorry. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, page 848. Also encourage you to have your outlines in your Bible. So if you grab the outline right from the bulletin, you'll see the title of my sermon this morning, Sending of the Son. Three points to the sermon this morning, forbearance of God, fury of God, and the forgiveness of God. Mark chapter 12, if you would follow along, I'll read the entirety of our passage this morning, verses 1 to 12. 
And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now you need to understand where we're at in Jesus' life. Because if you look, Mark 11... Mark 11, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. So that was Palm Sunday, kicking off the last week of Jesus' life. And if you look at chapter 11, verse 12, it says, on the following day. So that would be Monday, Jesus curses the fig tree and he cleanses the temple. Then chapter 11, verse 19, it says, when evening came, he went out of the city. Verse 20, they passed by in the morning, which means that we're already on Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life life. And in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples walk back into the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders ask him this question. By what authority are you doing these things? Now, what are the these things that they're talking about and so upset about? Well, it's obviously the cleansing of the temple, right? I mean, Jesus just walked into the temple on Monday morning of Passover week when thousands upon thousands of people gather in Jerusalem for this big celebration. And he walks into the temple as if he owns the place and he starts flipping over the tables. So it's a good question. By what authority are you doing these things? I would suggest that's a totally legitimate question. But if you look at chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus answers their question with a question. As I've told you before, when Jesus answers a question with a question, you know that there's a heart problem. And these religious leaders have a massive heart problem. Namely, they're claiming to love God, and yet they're rejecting the Son of God, the Messiah, whom God has sent. And I want you to note how the interaction in verses 27 to 33 has everything to do with John the Baptist. So in verse 30, Jesus asked the question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Well, what's the right answer? Well, it's that the baptism of John was from heaven. Or you could say John the Baptist was sent from God. 
sent as one of the last great prophets, one of the last great servants to declare the coming of the Lord. So as we consider the parable, you need to recognize these two major themes coming from the previous interaction. Number one, by what authority is Jesus doing these things? And number two, the fact that John the Baptist was sent from God and was killed by them. Because he declared that people should repent and believe in the one coming after him, namely Jesus. So that interaction, verses 27 to 33, frames this entire parable. But there's another context to this parable, and it flows right out of verse 1. Look again at verse 1. Jesus says, A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower. Then he leased it to the tenants and went into another country. Now, my guess is that doesn't mean very much to you. But to the religious leaders, they would have immediately thought of Isaiah chapter 5. Now, we're not going to turn there. But in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says that the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. So when Jesus got up and said, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, Every single religious leader would have knew immediately that he was talking about God and about Israel. So God is the owner and Israel is the vineyard. And the same issue that was happening back then in Isaiah chapter 5 is the same issue that's happening right here in Jesus' day. Because Israel is not bearing any fruit which is what Isaiah 5 highlights, that wild grapes, wild grapes are growing rather than sweet grapes. So grapes that give the appearance of being good, but are really just the sham. They're a facade. So bad fruit, if you will, posing as good fruit, the epitome of hypocrisy. And what's the consequence in Isaiah chapter 5? Well, in verse 5, God says, I will remove its hedge, and devour it. I will break down its wall and I will trample it. Now you need to understand what's terrifying in the gospel of Mark is that in just one chapter, Mark chapter 13, Jesus will declare the 70 AD judgment that Jerusalem will experience because they rejected their Messiah where the walls are broken down and the city is trampled. So Isaiah chapter 5 and Mark chapter 12 are very similar. But there's one difference. And that difference is the tenants. The tenants in Jesus' parable. He introduces this subtle but significant little twist. Because in Isaiah 5, God managed the vineyard for himself. But here, Jesus takes this super familiar concept of a vineyard and he infuses it with the idea of a wealthy landowner leasing the land to farmers or to tenants who work it. And as a result, they're expected to give the owner his rightful due of the harvest, which makes total sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's a wonderful concept and it's a win-win scenario for everyone. But as you think about that, who are the tenants in Jesus's parable? Well, they're the religious leaders who Jesus is talking about. Remember chapter 11, verse 27, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So God's the owner. The religious leaders are the tenants. 
and the vineyard is Israel. But as we move forward to be the details of the parable, verse 2 introduces some other characters. Because the owner of the vineyard sends servants to collect his share of the fruit. So then who are the servants? Well, they're the Old Testament prophets. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, at the stoning of Stephen, he gives a very similar summary of Israel's history, including their rebellion against God and their consistent rejection of the prophets. Stephen rails at them in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, to the religious leaders. He says this, you stiff-necked and stubborn people. You resist the Holy Spirit just like your fathers did in the Old Testament. For which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed the ones who announced the coming of the righteous one whom you just betrayed and murdered. So Stephen's summary is totally consistent with Jesus' parable. And Israel's nonstop, consistent, unwavering pattern of rebellion against God. And remember, God is the one who created Israel. God is the one who called her out from all the other nations. God is the one who set his affection on her. God is the one who made the decision to choose Israel, not because she was bigger or better than the other nations, but because he chose to set his affection on her. Therefore, he loved her, called her out so that she might live as a light in the midst of the darkness of the other nations. But the entire Old Testament is a story of Israel not fulfilling her role. So the story of her not bearing the fruit that God desired, but instead continually going astray. So here's the question. What does God do? Well, he sends prophets. He sends prophets, messengers, to declare the word of the Lord to the people of Israel so that they might repent and believe in the coming Messiah. But how do the tenants respond to the servants. Well, look with me at verses 3 to 5. It gives us the answer. As you walk through this with me, notice the growing hostility that is taking place because the owner sends the first servant, right? That's verse 3. says the tenants took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, the owner sends another servant, but the tenants took him, struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. Then verse 5, again, the owner sends another servant. This is the third servant, but this time they kill him. What does it say next? And so it was with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. So this is clearly the story of Israel and how her leaders rejected God's prophets. But again, why is God sending the prophets? He's sending the prophets to call his people to repent, that they might turn from their sinfulness, walk in his ways, and keep his commandments for their own good and for God's glory. And how were God's prophets actually treated? Well, not only from the Bible, but from extra biblical history, we know Jeremiah and Zechariah were beaten and were stoned to death. We know Isaiah was sawn in too. We know Uriah was killed by the sword. And Ezekiel, Micah, and Amos were tortured and killed for their faith in this coming Messiah. So it's totally fair to say Israel consistently and repeatedly beat, tortured, and killed the prophets that God sent for her own good. 
You know, a passage that's super helpful to summarize this whole idea of the history of Israel is 2 Chronicles 36. Listen to this summary of all that has taken place. It says, all the priests and people were exceedingly unfaithful following the abominations of the nation. So there's the wickedness of Israel. But it tells us how God responds. It says, therefore, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them his messengers. Why did he persistently send his messengers? It says, because he had compassion on his people. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose up against his people and there were no more remedies. So the consistent pattern in the parable and the consistent pattern in real life is to reject God's servants. So what does the landowner do? Well, verse 6 says he decides to send his son, his only son, his beloved son. Look at verse 6. It says he still had one other, a beloved son. So he sent him to them saying, surely they will respect my son, my beloved son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and all the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now, there's no doubt here that Jesus is speaking about himself. But what nails down that interpretation is the son language, which is all throughout the gospel of Mark. But specifically, I want to highlight the son language at Jesus' transfiguration. Back in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. If you remember that story, right, the the heavens open up and God declares, this is my beloved son. Then what does he say? He says, listen to him. Now just think about those words in light of this parable. Because God's been trying to get these people's attention for centuries. So thousands of years, one prophet after the other, pleading with them, calling them and commanding them to repent and believe in the coming Messiah, to look forward to his arrival, which is certainly coming. And now it's here. Jesus has arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. And God's saying, this is the one. This is my beloved son. Oh, please listen to him. Respond to him, recognize him, repent, and believe in him. And yet the haunting words are right here in verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And you and I both know that's exactly what they did. Verse 8. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So number three, the reality of the suffering son. Now before I move on, I want to just pause for a moment of application. I want you to think about the picture of God that we're given in these first eight verses. Because I think it's a glorious picture of number one, the forbearance of God. I mean, can you even imagine what you would have done if your feet were in the shoes of this landowner? 
I mean, how long would you have tolerated the tenants responding to your servants like this? The first, they beat and sent packing. The second, they punched in the face and they treated shamefully. The third, they tortured and they killed. Can you even imagine making it past the first servant? Tolerating that kind of treatment? Right, you would have immediately invested the, the situation at minimum. By the time you got to the second, right, you would have been on the phone. You would have called your lawyer. You would have pressed charges. You would have demanded what was rightfully yours. Yet in the parable, just think about this. After all of this, messenger number one, messenger number two, messenger number three, and the text says many others. The owner decides to make the decision to send his son. And again, the text doesn't say that he sent him with a team of Navy SEALs or that he sent him with the Green Berets or that he sent him with the Avengers. Any of those would have been a good decision, don't you think? But he sends him on a mercy mission, still offering terms of peace. Can you even believe that? Makes you almost want to question the owner's sanity, doesn't it? I mean, how'd it go with the last eight guys that you sent? Not good. All beaten, shamed, and killed. Well, then how do you think it's going to go with your son? And why in the world would you put your son, your only son, your beloved son, at that kind of risk? You know where I'm going. And I'm going there for a purpose. Because I want you to get a hold of the unbelievable mercy and kindness and long-suffering and the forbearance of God. Because he's so gracious, so loving, so long-suffering that it opens him up to the charge of being reckless and foolish with his servants and with his son. But wouldn't you agree that this parable corrects what I often, so often hear that the God of the Old Testament is violent, vindictive, and mean. Are you kidding me? This God, harsh, quick to anger, fast to fury? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. You need to know if that's your thinking this morning, then you haven't read the scriptures rightly and you know nothing about the God of the Bible. Instead, I think Psalm 103 gives us a wonderful description of who God is. The psalmist says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, that he's slow to anger and that he abounds in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion again to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. Dear believer, I want this glorious picture of God to stir up thankfulness and praise in your heart for God's unbelievable forbearance towards you. 
Because at one point in your life, you were no different than these tenants. You were an enemy of God, refusing to acknowledge God as creator and Lord and refusing to give him what was rightfully his. Your life and your worship. So he sent gospel messengers. And my guess is you didn't respond to the first by immediately coming to your senses, repenting and believing. But instead, if you were like me, continue to do your own thing, walked your own path, followed the course of this world, living in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and your mind. Yet God kept sending messengers. Whether it was friends or family, your parents or your pastor, or maybe just the guy who sits next to you at work. God's kept sending servants. And you kept refusing not wanting to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. And God would have been totally just just to stop sending the messengers. But he kept offering mercy and grace, peace and love, forbearance and forgiveness, until suddenly the lights went on and you understood the reality of your sin and the glory of this Savior. You repented and you believed. Dear believer, allow these first eight verses to cause thankfulness and praise for how God was forbearing of you. Doesn't that make you want to be merciful and gracious? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards others? Because the way that God treated us is exactly how we should treat others. In fact, it sets the standard for how we should be forbearing toward one another. So let me just ask, how do you react when someone sins against you? Are you patient and kind? Do you talk to them about it right away? Try to make sure that you're reconciled? Or if they don't see that at first, do you get angry with them, frustrated with them? Do you jump all over them? Are you incredulous that they could do such a thing or run through all the different ways in your minds in which you don't act like they do, sitting in a position of self-righteousness? You see, the human heart has this tendency to be patient and kind and long-suffering toward ourselves giving all sorts of room and always assuming the best and most often thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But we don't do that with others. Oh, dear believer, let's glory in God's grace and mercy, kindness and forbearance towards us, and let us offer that same kind of love toward others, which is not a call to excuse sin or ignore wickedness, but it is a call to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, grace and mercy, love and forbearance with others. That's number one, the forbearance of God. Now let's move on to number two, the fury of God. We won't spend as much time here, but I do want to walk through the obvious foolishness of these tenants of Israel's leaders who totally understand what Jesus is saying and even the foolishness of this world. 
I mean, just think about the behavior of these tenants. Because it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, do they realize the vineyard is not theirs? They don't own it. They didn't pay for it. They didn't buy it, create it, or in any way, shape, or form do anything that would give them legitimate claim to it. It is not their vineyard. And yet they act as if it is their vineyard. That's crazy. And I think it's equally crazy that they seem to not think the landowner is going to do anything about it. They just assume that if they kill the messengers and they kill the son, the property will be theirs. But there's a consequence to that kind of behavior, isn't there? And it's right here in verse 9. The question is asked, what will the owner of the vineyard do? We don't have to wonder. It tells us he will come and destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. So there's a just judgment that is most certainly coming when the tenants will be destroyed for their wickedness. But that's just the story, right? But now think about the foolishness of Israel's leaders. Because they actually acted just like these tenants throughout the entire Old Testament. And they're still acting like that right here, right now, in front of Jesus himself. Even though they've got all the facts and the evidence that you could possibly want in the Gospel of Mark to see him clearly. I mean, just think what we already know if you walk through and read the Gospel of Mark, right? Jesus is teaching with authority. Jesus is casting out demons. Jesus is healing the lepers and he's healing the sick. And he's even saying to a paralytic, take up your bed and walk. By the way, when did he say that? Mark chapter 2. Where did he say that? Right in front of the religious leaders. Mark chapter 2, verse 10, so that they, the religious leaders, might know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of Man, who has all authority on earth to forgive sins. What do they do with that information? They decide to kill him. Do you see their utter foolishness? To not respond rightly to Jesus. To see his miracles, his power, his authority, his compassion, and his forbearance. And still not acknowledge him as the Messiah, the Son of God, who's pleading with them to repent, to believe, and to be saved. And it's not as though they don't understand what he's talking about. Look at verse 12. Mark 12, verse 12, clearly Says, and they were seeking to arrest him, arrest him so they could kill him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against who? Against them. So they know Jesus is talking about them. They know they're the tenants in the parable. They know they're the ones who killed the prophets. They know they killed John the Baptist, and they know they're planning even right now to kill the Son, God's beloved Son. So they completely understand. That God's forbearance will ultimately give way to God's fury. That God will come and destroy them, the religious leaders, and give his vineyard to others. Namely, to the Gentiles who joyfully repent and believe in Jesus. Do you see that? Do you see how utterly 
foolish they are. You know, I've got only one explanation for that kind of stupidity. You know what it is. Sin makes you stupid. If you're new here and you haven't heard me say that yet, you should write that down. (laughs) It's almost said every week. It's the only way that I can explain it. Sin makes you stupid. So stupid, in fact, that you would choose a path that you know ends in death and destruction. Why would you do that? Hey, here's the path. It goes to eternal life. You get to be with God. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. Why don't you go that way? No, no. No, no. Not eternal life. Death. I want death. I want destruction. Sin makes you stupid. Proverbs 16, 25. There's a way that seems right to a man. Like killing God's prophets and killing God's son. But its end is the way of death and destruction. But the religious leaders are not the only ones who are foolish here, are they? I mean, the same could easily be said about the world in which we live. Because everyone who lives in God's world, God's vineyard, and yet refuses to honor God as the creator and the sustainer of this world, this vineyard, could easily be described as a total fool. In fact, that's how the Bible describes people. Not their intellect, but their spiritual well-being and how they look at Jesus. It describes them as fools. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Romans 1 talks about people who know deep down in their hearts that God exists. They see his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature in all of creation. And yet they suppress that truth about God in their own unrighteousness. Then verse 21 says, for although they know God, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God. So their foolish hearts are darkened, claiming to be wise, they become fools. Why are they fools? Because they exchange the glory of God for all sorts of wicked idols. So deep down, we all know God exists. And we know that by the external evidence of God's creation. And we know that by the internal evidence of our own consciences. But foolishly, apart from God's work in our hearts and our minds, we ignore those facts and we live like these foolish tenants, thinking we can somehow do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want, and we're never going to be held accountable for it. That's foolishness. If you believe that this morning, you're a fool. And I say that because I love you. If you think you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, and there be no consequence for it, then you're a fool. Because that's just not true. So yes, verses 1 to 8 teach us the forbearance of God. And verse 9 and verse 12 teach us the fury of God, the wrath of God. That all those who do not respond rightly to God, will experience the wrath of God. And that's true not only for the tenants in the parable and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, but that's true for every single 
one of us here this morning who believe that. Romans 1 makes that so clear because we've all exchanged the glory of God for worthless idols at some point in our lives. So here's the question. What should we do? How do we take advantage of the forbearance of God so that we might avoid the fury of God and finally, ultimately, and most importantly, experience the forgiveness of God? And how does God enable that to happen? Well, the answer is right here in verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, I desperately want you to see the glorious wisdom of God packed into these two short verses because in this little mini parable, Jesus is obviously both the rejected stone and the cornerstone. But notice the order, because he must first be the rejected stone in order to be the cornerstone. He must be rejected by the builders, so the religious leaders, in order for him to be the cornerstone of our salvation. And in Mark, Jesus has already predicted the reality of his rejection three times. Three times he has declared, explaining to it, plainly to the disciples that he will be the rejected stone. You can look at them later this afternoon, but it's Mark 8, 31, 9, 31, and 10, 33. And he explains the fact that he's the rejected stone with incredible accuracy. Let me just read to you Mark 8, 31. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man must be rejected. Rejected by who? Jesus tells us by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. I mean, do you realize that's the same group that he's talking to right here? So Jesus must first be rejected. He must be condemned, mocked, spit upon, flogged, killed, crucified, dead, and buried, which is exactly what these religious leaders are going to do. And get this. That's happening in three days. Because this parable is told on Tuesday. Wednesday, Thursday, Good Friday. Jesus is crucified, buried. He becomes the rejected stone, which is absolutely necessary for him to become the cornerstone of our salvation, the glory of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Notice what verse 11 says. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Now, when you hear that language, this was the Lord's doing, I don't know about you, but I cannot help but think of Peter's sermon on Pentecost, when he not only condemns the religious leaders for their role in rejecting the Lord Jesus as the promised Messiah while testifying all at the same time to God's marvelous sovereign work of redemption. Acts 2.22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So both the sovereign work of God, which is absolutely marvelous, and the condemnation of the religious leaders who are absolutely wicked for crucifying their coming Messiah. All of that for our glorious salvation. But Jesus isn't done preaching. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 10. I want you to see how Peter pulls this all together for us this morning. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. It's on page 912. Flip forward. Luke, John, Acts. Acts 4, verse 10. Look at how Peter pulls this all together. Everybody good? Acts 4, verse 10. Peter says, Let it be known to all of you, notice to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, there's the rejected stone, whom God raised from the dead, there's our cornerstone. By him, this man, a miraculously healed man, is standing before you well. What is Peter's conclusion? This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which you must be saved. So how do we take advantage of the forbearance of God and avoid the fury of God? And finally, ultimately, and most importantly, experience the forgiveness of God? Glory in this simplicity. What we need to do is believe in Jesus and the reality of his death, his burial, and his resurrection for our salvation. For there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. So if you're here this morning and you're not exactly sure what you believe about God, I can't imagine a more helpful passage for you to know than Mark chapter 12 verses 1 to 12. Because you might have walked in here this morning with a total misunderstanding of who God is. Or maybe you don't even believe God exists. Or maybe you think he's weak and he's worthless because wickedness runs so rampant in our world today. You see, you need to understand this passage teaches that it's not that God isn't powerful. He is. And it's not that he won't judge the wicked. He will. We're just in a season of mercy right now. A season of God's glorious forbearance. But you need to know that season isn't going to last forever. So he's not judging your sin, your wickedness, or your rejection right now. But he will ultimately, either when you die or when Christ returns. But right now, he continues to offer his glorious forgiveness that if you believe in the Lord Jesus, the redacted stone who's being offered to you to be your cornerstone, you'll be delivered from God's fury and enjoy the sweet reality of God's forgiveness. I appeal to you, do not interpret God's inaction as weakness. Or as proof that he doesn't exist. It's simply a sign of his forbearance. He's just giving you time. So that you might repent and believe in him. You know 2 Peter 3.9 says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. As some count slowness. But is patient 
towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I appeal to you, repent, believe, and be saved. And do that this morning. He's the rejected stone so that he can be your cornerstone. And the offer is made. But you have to respond. You have to repent. You have to believe. That's the only way to be saved. So I appeal to you to do that this morning, to not be foolish with regard to how you respond to Jesus. And for you, dear believer, let me close by making one obvious connection. That if we're still in the season of God's forbearance, which we are, then in Jesus' parable, we're the servants who are being sent out to proclaim the good news of the gospel so that others might repent, believe, and be saved from the wrath of come, the fury of God to come. Which means, number one, We should not be surprised when our evangelism efforts are met with hostility. Think about the servants. It didn't go so well for them, did it? So number one, we should not be surprised when our evangelism is met with hostility. You know, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though some strange thing were happening. I love that verse. Super helpful. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as though some strange thing were happening. Number one, hostile responses to our gospel efforts should not be a surprise to us. So then number two, knowing that, we must persevere in our efforts to share the good news of the gospel with others. We must be those who press through the hostility and continue to share the good news of the gospel. I mean, praise God that people didn't give up on us. That they willingly pushed through our ignorance and our arrogance and kept sharing and kept pleading and kept praying for our salvation. You know, there was a guy in my life who all throughout my high school years, he was the father of a friend of mine, kept sharing the gospel. Every time I would go over to his house, we'd sit down and have dinner. He'd pull out his Bible and we'd interact on a passage and he'd share the gospel with me. And I would nod and I was gracious and I was kind. And then he pushed a little bit harder. I graduated when I was 18. He actually came over to my house in order to interact with me, sat down at my table and he said, Steve, I'm very concerned about you. And I said, okay, thanks, appreciate that. I tried to be nice, but then, you know, I kind of grew hostile, you know, (laughs) and said, I think you should just leave me alone. I think I'm doing fine by myself. And you know what he did? He kept praying, and he kept sharing, and he kept pushing through my ignorance and my arrogance until one day I came to faith. And I called him and I thanked him so very much for pushing through my ignorance and my arrogance and my hostility. We need to be those who know that there's going to be hostile responses to our evangelism efforts, but push through 
the ignorance and arrogance of others and keep sharing and keep pleading and keep praying. And why would we do that? Because of Acts 4.12. That there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. May God give us the grace to be steadfast, to be immovable, and to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not surprised by trials, but willing to persevere for people's souls. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. Lord, we love your word. And we're so grateful for the truth that it brings to our lives. Lord, I pray that we would not be those who forget where it is that we've come from, that we would recognize the forbearance of God that has delivered us from the fury of God so that we might experience the forgiveness of God and the many saints your messengers who have shared that message for us, that we might repent, believe, and be saved. Lord, I pray that our hearts would overflow with thankfulness and praise. Lord, for any of those who are here this morning who have not yet repented, believed in the Lord Jesus, I pray that they would hear this message as God sending a messenger, that they might hear the good news of the gospel. And that they would not be foolish, that their darkened hearts would not be foolish, that they they would not deny the reality that there is a God who created this world and sustains this world and has offered his only begotten son, his beloved son, as the rejected stone to be their cornerstone. Lord, I pray for your grace in their minds and in their hearts that they might see the glory of the Lord Jesus, repent and believe in him. Lord, I'm so grateful. I pray that you cause us to be those who are steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.